You're listening to the Food Freedom Podcast, hosted by me, Dylan Murphy, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Food Freedom Podcast explores the topics of intuitive eating, mindset, and body respect to help you create a lifestyle of lasting food freedom. We believe it's possible to feel confident in your food choices and connected to your body. And here on the Food Freedom Podcast, we will show you how. I'm the owner of Free Method Nutrition, a nutrition coaching practice empowering women to break up with diet culture by teaching them how to trust, respect, and feel safe in their bodies. We welcome all foods over here from kale salads to queso and everything in between. Let's dive in. This episode of Food Freedom Podcast is sponsored by our Free Method Recipe Book. It's time that you have a way to create flavor-packed meals that you enjoy that also align with your goal of food freedom. This recipe book is designed to support your intuitive eating journey so you can gain confidence in the kitchen. Complete with recipes that emphasize gentle nutrition, you'll find delicious and simple recipes that allow you to win back your time. Head to freemethodnutrition.com slash recipe book to get yours today. Welcome back to another episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Today, I am joined by Allie Bonner. Allie is the founder and CEO of Oat House and the creator of the delicious granola butter. <laughs> Allie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, I am looking forward to this conversation. I feel like before we even hit record, we already had so much just juice that we were talking about. So I know that this episode is going to be great um, just for everyone listening. Yes. All about the juice. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. <laughs> um, well, to start, tell me a little more just about you, um, your background, who you are. Yeah, definitely. Um, so hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. I'm Allie. Um, so my journey, I mean, I'll try and keep things short, but really as mentioned, I'm founder of a food company. Um, we make a product called granola butter, which is the first ever oat-based spread. Um, so if you haven't heard of it, you're not alone. It's definitely a new idea, um, to the category. And I like to describe it to people as it has like the texture of a nut butter. So think almost like a peanut butter, almond butter, um, but it tastes like liquid granola. So some people describe it as those cinnamon Teddy grams. If you've tried those, um, graham crackers, kind of that vibe. And the, um, genesis of my product really came out of my eating disorder recovery. Mm -hmm. So I had struggled with food in my body for over a decade. I mean, really as long as I can remember, you know, I think we all, or most of us have probably had that moment where we just realize we're just, we have that awareness of our bodies, right? You know, when we're little, it's like, we're just playing and jumping and your body isn't anything that really has significance or you think about. And I definitely reached that point, you know, maybe early middle school, um, where I kind of just realized, okay, you know, there are certain things about my body that are different from other girls, or there are certain things I don't like, you know, just that internal comparison started to begin. Um, and it just spiraled into a decade long struggle with, you know, body image issues, orthorexia, um, which I'm sure your lis listeners know, but if you don't, it's, um, just an obsession with eating perfectly clean all the time. So yeah. I sort of describe it as like, healthy eating taken to the extreme. Um, so I was really obsessed with, you know, ingredient 
lists and the makeup of the food, the quality, certain oils. And so it was really toxic thinking and it took up a lot of headspace. Um, and to add, you know, fuel to the fire, I was actually studying nutrition in college, ironically. So mm. my undergrad, I was in, you know, I was a Nutrisci major up in the Bay Area at UC Berkeley. And it really just it fueled my obsession. And I, I went in for the wrong reasons as well. I think I studied nutrition, you know, out of fear of gaining weight. And I studied because I thought, well, maybe the more I learn about nutrition, I'll unlock this secret to, you know, having the perfect body and eating perfectly clean. Mm -hmm. And I was always chasing, you know, for me, it definitely was a blend of the aesthetics of looking a certain way and losing weight, but it also was just this um, kind of intangible goal of achieving like the pinnacle of wellness, right? Like I, I thought mm. there was just this nirvana that I could arrive yeah. to of perfect health. And this was really before the wellness industry was, you know, very trendy, like healthy eating wasn't cool when I was going through all this. So mm. I was in high school and college and, you know, my friends were bringing Lunchables to school and I was bringing a, a salad from Trader Joe's and they were like, what are you doing eating vegetables voluntarily? Like, this mm. is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I think, you know, and we can talk about this later too, but I think it's gotten even much more difficult to discern for people now that the wellness industry is flourishing mm. because, you know, how do you determine, am I just a healthy eater? Am I nourishing my body, you know, versus am I obsessed and am I a little orthorexic? So I definitely mm. feel for people that are going through it right now because it's, I think, more challenging than ever, especially with some of the marketing in the food industry. Um, but back to my story, I struggled with this throughout all college and I really was leading a double life. I really felt like on one hand, I was this really outgoing, you know, um, extroverted kind of party animal college student mm. that was quote unquote normal. I had a lot of friends. I was really social. But then on the other hand, I was hiding this secret where I was restricting and binging multiple times, or, you know, throughout the entire period of college. And once I graduated, this continued for a few years. I was working in tech in San Francisco and I was just, I reached my breaking point. There was, it wasn't one moment that, you know, I was kind of people probably think of the stereotypical like rock bottom where I'm just like on the bathroom floor sobbing. Like it, it really was just these little these little moments that kind of led up to this point where I just, something clicked inside of me. And I was like, I am done. Like I am done watching my life pass me by. I'm in my early twenties. Like I should be living in the moment. I should be thriving. I should be going out with my friends. And I was just isolating. And I was, you know, all my headspace was dedicated to thoughts of food. So ended up deciding mm -hmm. to reach out to a nutritional therapist um, who just changed my life. You know, she really, was the one who helped me not see food as just numbers because I was so focused on the black and white. Um, I also really tied a lot of my morality to food. So I labeled a lot of foods as good versus bad. And, you know, if I was eating salads and grilled chicken all day, I was a good person. And if I had something that I deemed bad, then I, you know, had to repent for my sins so yeah. to speak. and I would overexercise and I would eat really clean, quote unquote, clean the next week. So it really was this hamster wheel. And I'm just so grateful mm -hmm. that I broke out of that. And I, I say that not to brag, you know, but really to provide mm -hmm. hope for people that are struggling because I honestly didn't, I felt like something was broken inside of me. I thought mm -hmm. I was never going to crawl out of this hole. I thought I was never going to have a normal relationship with food. And it's just so shocking to me, even as we're talking right now to think like, I'm not thinking about food 24 seven. I mean, mm -hmm. now I'm running my business and there are days 
obviously I still eat lunch, but there are days where I'm like, oh shit, like I need to eat something. Right. And it's not where before it was like, I was wait counting down the seconds until I could have my next planned meal because I was so hungry. (laughs) And so, yeah. yeah. So long story short, it's been a a total journey with food in my body. And then where granola butter comes in. um, So part of my recovery was actually introducing my fear foods back into my diet. And, um, I was terrified of fats and nut butters for years because of the quote unquote calories. Um, so when I started to add them back in, I really had a hard time digesting them. And just because mm. I hadn't eaten fat fats for a long time. And then all of a sudden I was yeah. going zero to hundred. So my body was like, Whoa, girl, you know, chill out. <laughs> um, and so in the meantime, so I was working with my nutritionist and she was like, you know, Hey, let's see if there's any nut-free options that maybe could work better with your body. Cause I really didn't want to give up on recovery. And I felt like I could mm-hmm. have used that as an excuse to be like, Oh, well, you know, I'm intolerant to nut butter. So I might as well just not eat them. But I was just so passionate about finding something that was a little, you know, intermediate <laughs> fix, um, substitution. Yeah. And so I started trying the sunflower seed butters. I tried the soy nut butter and none of them resonated with me. And, you know, no, shade against any other nut-free spread company. But for me personally, I just, they didn't do it for me the way that my beloved almond and peanut butter did. Um, so I started to experiment myself and I was in my little tiny San Francisco kitchen. I was blending up, you know, random stuff in my Vitamix and finally had this idea to do an oat-based spread. Um, and I just started thinking, you know, there's oat milk that's kind of coming onto the scene. That's super popular. Mm. Why has no one done an oat-based spread? So started doing some early iterations, some early test runs with that. Um, and then that was how the idea of granola butter was born. Mm. That's so, so cool. I love that it comes from your own just personal story and relationship with food, because I think that can give even people navigating their own recovery journey, a lot of hope. I, I would assume like in those like deep days of recovery, like owning a food company and especially like a granola butter company probably didn't even, wasn't even like a thought in your head. Oh, yeah. If anything, it would be maybe like a, I don't know, vegetable, like some sort of like super, super health food type company. Totally. No. And honestly, I mean, I really give a lot of credit to granola butter for helping me with mm-hmm. this idea of trigger foods, because yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you, you know, in the early days of starting our company, we were doing a lot of, um, just test, you know, different recipes and testing out different blends and everything as we're solidifying our final, you know, product. And I would binge on, on those, mm-hmm. you know, early products because yeah. I was still in this mindset that it was off limits for me. And the Mm -hmm. more I surrounded myself with granola butter and now, I mean, obviously I have it coming out of my ears. I'm literally looking at one jar on the desk in front of me right now. (laughs) Like I can't get away from this stuff. And I mean, I still eat it. I I love it. Like, especially when we come out with new flavors, I think that's a little more exciting to me, but it really taught me, you know, the more that you're surrounded by something and the more that something isn't this like sexy off limits Mm -hmm. food, it's going to lose its appeal. And so that was, and I know it's so sounds so basic, but to me, it really was this huge epiphany moment because I really thought something was wrong with me. And I was like, I don't have willpower. I can't control Mm -hmm. myself around these foods. And, you know, my trigger foods were always the granola, the trail mix, you know, the nut butter, things I didn't allow Mm -hmm. myself to have. And once I allowed them back in my life, you know, and of course you have that honeymoon period at first where you're going to overeat them if you've been restricting them for a while, but then it levels out and you're like, I can have this whenever I want. And so it's not as exciting to me anymore. 
Yes. Yes. And I love that you said all that because I see that so often where people just immediately think like, oh, I can't control myself around this food. I can't keep it at home. Like I don't have willpower, but nine times out of 10, or maybe even 10 times out of 10, it's related to the fact that they're restricting that food. And I think even the example of you now with granola butter, it's literally a company that you own. So you're surrounded by it all the, all the time. So it's not that appealing. Like, sure, you still love the taste and, and all of that, but it's like, okay, I can eat this anytime I want. Like, I, I feel controlled around this food. Mm-hmm. But any food that we're saying is off limits or, you know, what you mentioned earlier about the morality of like good versus bad food. Like if we're eating this food that we've told ourselves is bad and makes us feel like we're committing this crime, then of course we're going to feel out of control around it. Of course, we're going to want to binge on it because it's like, well, now I'm doing this bad thing. I might as well kick myself on down and, and keep eating it. And then I feel like that's when that restrict part of the hamster wheel cuts in too of like, okay, I'm letting myself do this today, but then tomorrow I'll start clean. Like I'll start, Um, I have to throw it all out, get rid of it, et cetera. Oh yeah. No, the all or nothing thinking was just, I mean, that was me to a T. Like if I had Mm -hmm. one, it was even like a bite of something that was, you know, off my plan or not, Mm -hmm. not part of what I envision my day looking like, then the whole bag was gone, you know? And someone told Mm -hmm. me this, this metaphor, which I really, it actually helped me a lot. It's like, if you got a flat tire, you know, you wouldn't slash, I'm sure you've heard that you wouldn't slash your other Mm -hmm. tires because, and it, it, even though it's kind of funny and dumb, but it really made a lot of sense to me because I feel like we treat food sometimes so differently and there's so much wrapped up in the emotion and everything. And, um, and just approaching it from that logical you know, sense in addition to obviously stopping restricting, it really helps because I think it's easy to kind of swirl down into this like vortex of just like, Oh, I I messed up. I need to just, you know, I'll start fresh tomorrow. And that just, Mm -hmm. it puts you on this hamster wheel. So. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you mentioned too, when you were talking about your story that really stood out and I think is especially relevant right now, like you had mentioned is this kind of fine line between healthy eating taking care of your body, choosing nourishing foods versus like orthorexia and like obsession with healthy eating. What do you think for you helped to kind of find that difference of like, okay, this is like an unhealthy obsession versus this is like me just nourishing my body, making space for all foods. Like how, yeah. What helped you kind of find that? that balance? Yeah. Yeah, It's a great question. I think it really comes down to the intention behind it for me personally, Mm -hmm. and also not accompany, not accompanying those habits and those patterns with feelings of guilt and shame. So when Mm -hmm. I was in a really orthorexic, rigid mindset, the motivation and the drive and the intention behind me eating healthy was fear-based. It was, if I Mm -hmm. don't eat this way, I am going to get fat and God forbid I gain weight, right? Like that was the worst Mm -hmm. case scenario in my mind at the time. Um, And now, you know, I love eating nourishing foods. I love fueling my body in a way that feels good to me. Um, And I actually have to eat 
gluten-free because I have Hashimoto's and I've tried Mm -hmm. incorporating it in. This was a whole lot. We can get into this too, like navigating food intolerances with in recovery. But I, when I first moved to Philly, you know, in January, February, I was like, I'm going to eat all the cheesesteaks. Like, and I kind of was in this like rebel period where I was Mm -hmm. like, you know, I've come so far with food and I was very sensitive around not restricting. So I was very much, you know, my doctor was like, maybe gluten-free would be something you could try, you know, to keep your antibodies down. And I was like, no, like I, you know, I don't want to restrict anything. And I felt like shit, like my antibodies shot up and it Mm. just, it really showed me another side of taking care of my body, but it was the intention behind it. It wasn't fear-based of like, you know, oh, I can't have gluten because what's going to happen. It was like, I'm Mm -hmm. choosing this. I'm choosing to eat this way. I'm choosing to nourish my body with foods that agree with me. And that is self-respect. And that is body love Mm -hmm. because then I can show up better for my family, my relationships, my employees. Um, And so I think it really is the intention behind it. And then also just Mm -hmm. the rigidity, right? So, you know, having that flexibility to maybe eat something that you normally wouldn't, or, you know, even with gluten for me, and this is so different, obviously for anyone who has celiac or a serious allergy, but there are times where I weigh the pros and the cons, and I'm not so rigid mm-hmm. with myself where I beat myself up after the fact, right? If I'm out at a beautiful, you know, small Italian restaurant and they make the pasta from scratch, like you better bet that I'm going to order that. And, you know, maybe I won't feel great that night or the next day, mm-hmm. but it's better than me. You know, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Where in the past I would have, yeah. and I would have like run five miles and I would have green juice, mm-hmm. like all these yeah. crazy things. Yeah. And I think that's less healthy than actually just eating the food that you're, you know, avoiding. Mm, that's so good. And I, I think food intolerances can be a perfect example of that where the motivation behind it is so different than just like, Oh, I saw on Instagram that I need to cut out gluten and it's going to cure, you know, help me be like, quote unquote, healthier, let me cut it out. It's this bad food versus like, okay, I have these lab results, physical signs, this kind of evidence from my body that like me and gluten don't get along well. So I'm not going to consume it that much. I'm going to be mindful of when I do, but I even love what you said. And I think again, it like you even mentioned, depends on the nature of the allergy and severity and all of that. But in your position where it's like, okay, I can have gluten every now and then I just kind of have to weigh the pros and cons. Like what is the healthier decision here? Like allowing myself to enjoy this pasta, knowing I may not feel amazing tomorrow or skipping out on the pasta. Um, and I think that'll look different for each person and, and what their intolerance may look like allergy, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I, I love that you bring that up because I see, navigating recovery while also having some sort of like food intolerance or allergy can sometimes feel feel hard and feel defeating for people of like, does this mean I can't have like reach that true food freedom and, and allowing all foods to fit. But I think with what you brought up, it shows, yes, it's absolutely true that you can reach that. It just is going to look different for different people depending on you know, so many factors such as medical issues. Totally. And I don't want people to think that I'm perfect with this either. Like it's such a journey. I mean, I went through, I feel like I went through the seven stages of five stages, seven stages of grief, where when I first was Uh realizing, you know, I really should be gluten-free for my health. I really should. Mm. And I went through like 
you know, denial. And then I went through anger and I was just pissed because my boyfriend, Eric, like he can eat anything, you know? And I was like, Mm. he's totally fine. You know, nothing affects him. And I sort of went through that like victim mindset. And so Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, I've been through, it's a journey. And there are still times where I'm like at the Italian restaurant and I order the pasta and I kind of regret it. And I'm like, you know, they had a gluten-free option, but part of me was like, I want to be part, I want to, I just want to fit in. Like, I don't want to be this, yeah. you know, the weird person that's like, oh, can I have the gluten-free mm-hmm. one? So it's, it's a journey for me too. And it's mm-hmm. not perfect. And I think you get better at it. And it's like you said, it's so individual, you know, depending mm-hmm. on just what you, what you want for yourself um, and yeah. weighing the pros and the cons. So I just want to throw yeah. that in there because I think sometimes you can hear people's stories and be like, oh, they have it all together. So I yeah. definitely do not. <laughs> mm, yes. Thanks for sharing that because yeah, I think it's easy. I mean, and that's just the nature of, you know, social media and even podcasts, these sort of things these days, it's easy to hear someone's story and think like, gosh, like how can I get to be like her? She has it perfectly all together, but you know, just in the nature of recovery and each of our own relationships with food and our body, like I don't, and I tell my clients this too, like, I don't think there's this like finish line we meet in the sense of like, okay, I've achieved perfection. My relationship with food is like a hundred percent every day, all day. Like it's kind of this pendulum of like, there's some days where it's really good. And then there's some days where there's some old patterns that maybe start to like creep back in or some thoughts that I'm having that make it not so great. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's a really encouraging thing for people listening to hear too, of like perfection isn't necessarily the goal. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I know one thing you talk about too, is just how eating disorders don't have a look. And I think oftentimes in our society and even just, you know, I remember learning in school in my undergrad about eating disorders in like the one class, one lecture I maybe had on them, which is still just ridiculous to me, but just the way that they taught about eating disorders, I think feeds into this mindset that they do have like a quote unquote look. Um, and then even what we maybe see portrayed in the media and TV and movies, um, And I see that a lot of times holding people back from getting the help they need because maybe they think they aren't sick enough. They don't have what like looks like quote unquote, an eating disorder. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear kind of your thoughts on that too. Yeah. A hundred percent. That was me to a T like I, Mm -hmm. for so long, the same as you, I mean, I learned that there was only anorexia, bulimia. I never Mm -hmm. really even heard about binge eating disorder or any of the other, you know, orthorexia, definitely not. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm 28. So when I was, you know, really struggling in middle school and high school, orthorexia wasn't really a thing. Like, I feel like people didn't really Mm -hmm. talk about it at all. And so I remember thinking, you know, I'm not anorexic because I had really just associated anorexia with being super underweight and this like frail, Mm -hmm. you know, stereotypical, eating disorder looking woman. Right. And I was, I was playing sports. I was, you know, because I was restricting and binging, my weight did fluctuate a lot, you know, but Mm -hmm. my kind of set point and where, if you just looked at me from the outside, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't say, Oh, she's very frail. She has an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, which kind of, it kept me stuck for a long time because number one, like you said, I felt like I wasn't sick enough. I wasn't you know, restricting hard enough. I wasn't doing it right in my disordered brain. Um, and then secondly, I just felt like I wasn't worthy of treatment because I 
didn't look sick enough. Um, Mm. And I also just felt very lost and I felt like I didn't really fall into a bucket. And had I known that there were other people out there like me that also had this obsession with, you know, eating perfectly clean all the time and ingredients and this idea of orthorexia, I would have felt a lot more seen. I would have felt less isolated, less alone. And I probably would have, you know, looked for help earlier. Um, so I really just, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think the more that I've shared about my experience online and on social media and just the outpouring of people just coming out of the woodwork, whether they knew me Mm. growing up or just they're complete strange strangers on the internet, you know, it's, it's so clear to me that so many people have had that experience where their bodies maybe weren't this stereotypical eating disorder Mm -hmm. type body. And that kept them so quiet and so stuck for a long time. So yeah, I'm glad Mm -hmm. you brought that up because it really was something that I tried to talk about because it did, it kept me very alone and, and, you know, quiet for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to, I think, and this even goes back to what we were talking about with healthy eating versus like orthorexia, where a lot of things are even like normalized in our culture today of like the size of people's bodies, thin bodies, the way that people eat. And so I think that can even keep people stuck of like, well, I can't have an eating disorder. Like this is how people eat. Like this is normal. Like no one's even asking me if I'm okay. Cause it, it doesn't look like anything's wrong with me versus if you kind of fit that mold of what people may think of when they think of an eating disorder. Um, and I think what's so hard about it too, is at least still now in the DSM five, which is how people classify, like diagnose, um, different mental health illnesses, such as eating disorders, the criteria for anorexia does have weight in it. And then there's atypical anorexia. If you don't meet that weight criteria, which is just ridiculous, um, because I think it feeds into that thought. And so it's hard because there might even be people who have heard that from a provider, like not even just, you know, friends or family or their own internal thoughts. Like they may have, those thoughts may have been like affirmed by a provider who's supposed to be their, you know, biggest advocate and support. I didn't get my period until I was 18, 17 or 18. Mm, And I remember my mom was like, so worried about me. She's like, what's going on? And I went Mm. and my doctor was like, you know, they didn't even really ask me about how much I was eating. And I was totally Mm. restricting. Like this was in high school. I was bringing, you know, like close to nothing. I remember feeling so faint throughout the day and I was playing two sports. Mm. I was growing, you know, just like so expending so much energy (laughs) and being in high school, the emotional energy you expect is like astronomical (laughs) of just anxiety and, you know, um, and so, and my provider was like, you know, well, I would have been, I remember her saying this so clearly, like, I would have been concerned about, you know, how much you're eating, but you're not underweight. Like she'd said that to me, like just Mm. so directly about like, well, you know, you look like a healthy weight. And so she was like, Mm. I'm sure you're fine with food and stuff. And I was kind of just like, wait, like, you know, crying out for help silently, like, no. And she's like, maybe you're over-exercising, but you know, anyways, but it just looking back, it's so crazy because I, it affected my menstrual cycles. And then I didn't get a consistent period or cycle until a few years ago when I really started to Mm -hmm. work with my doctor on it because I had just messed up my hormones so bad from years of, you know, restricting food. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like all of that even goes into like, we can't assume someone's health just based on their weight. Like you Mm -hmm. were clearly, you know, crying out for help and you get 
kind of invalidated in a sense of like, well, you're not underweight, so you must be healthy. Like you must be nourishing your body, but clearly there's things going on in your body that are saying the opposite. And I think what can be hard throughout recovery is all of our bodies can respond so differently and our bodies are so resilient. And, and some people may not lose a drastic amount of weight if they're restricting. Some people may, some people's labs may, you know, kind of go all over the place. Some people's may not. And so it's so hard even battling those thoughts. And I think even, you know, that may even go with like comparing to other people's stories of like, well, she must be sicker than me because she's lost all this weight or her labs or this, or this is happening or whatever it may be. Yeah. But it, what I hear and what you were, you know, trying to portray to that doctor is like, we all know our bodies better than anyone else and knowing like, okay, I don't have a period and I know I'm restricting. Like, I know there's things that I'm doing wrong, but you know, it's not like it all just clicks and it's like, okay, I'm just going to start eating more and recover and not restrict. Like it's not that easy, but I think trusting our own inner wisdom can be huge in all of that. Yeah. And also, I mean, being in high school too, it's like, even though I wasn't getting a period, I had this little voice inside of me that was like, this isn't healthy. This isn't right. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that eating disorder voice is so much louder sometimes, especially where you are in your life. Like I was so young Mm -hmm. that I was like, well, you know, fertility kids, that's so far down the line. Like that doesn't matter where then the older I got and I was realizing, wait, shit, like I still haven't had a period, even though I'm, you know, restored with calories and food. And I, so that's when I really took a deep dive because I was like, all my friends started having kids and I was like, wait, hold on. I need to make sure that, you know, I'm okay down there. So yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's so, so true. Gosh, I feel like I could continue this conversation for hours and go like a million different directions, but I just want to thank you too, for your transparency and letting us into your story. I know, like I've even already mentioned, this is really going to help our listeners just to see that they're not alone, that, you know, like we've talked about, everyone's story is so different. Yes. And I don't think it's helpful to like a hundred percent compare ourselves to other people, but I think it can be reassuring just to hear from people who have kind of walked that road of recovery and reach that, you know, other side in a sense, even though, like I mentioned, it's not like there's this like grand finale of a finish line. Um, yeah. And, and the way I love to end all of our conversations is to ask our guests what their favorite food memory is. Um, Cause I think one of the just most powerful things about recovery and healing our relationship with food is getting that joy back in food and, you know, experience and the social aspect and culture and, and all of that. So I would love to hear what a favorite food memory you have. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. And I love that because that's one of our missions at my company Mm -hmm. too, is like bringing the joy and pleasure back into eating because people, especially in the healthy, you know, healthy food, healthy eating space, people always turn to like, oh, this is healthy for me. So I should eat it. But what about being like, does this make me happy? (laughs) Um, so my memory is, I mean, it's funny because right when you asked that, like, I just had a flash Mm -hmm. of like one moment in time, And I was really close to my grandma and my mom's Mm -hmm. mom. And I remember she like once a year, because my parents would get mad when she would do this, but she would like 
take me out of school and we would play hooky uh-huh. and she would take me to, I don't know if you've ever heard of Rite Aid, but they had ice cream. Yeah. Like thrif- It used to be mm-hmm. thrifty, you know, and they had like, it was kind of the old school, like ice cream scoop just in like mm-hmm. a drugstore. And it's like, you know, probably yeah. really cheap, not that great tasting ice cream, but just that we would get like on the cones, little cake cones and just like sitting mm-hmm. there on a summer day outside eating it with her. Like that's just so I, it, mm. I treasure that moment so much because, and it's, I, it hurts me to think that so many years, you know, even while she was still alive, as I got older, I stopped doing that with her because mm. I was afraid of ice cream and I was, you know, t- I didn't want to eat that. And so yeah. I think that's also what motivates me as I get older. And as I maybe think about having a family or even just moments mm. with friends and loved ones just always trying to be in the moment. And those moments are always what stay in your mind. Not, you know, those times where you said no to the ice cream to go have a salad by yourself, <laughs> like be yes. sad. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that so much. And it's, it's so funny or, um, a lot of our guests, like every time I ask that question, I feel like probably 75% of our guests, the answers have to do with their grandma, which is so fun. Aww, like I think so sweet. something yeah. about like our grandparents and, and food. I don't, there's yeah. something about it. <laughs> it just makes yeah. it extra special. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. <laughs> uh, um, well, Allie, where can people find you if they want to follow along with you, if they want to try out your granola butter? Um, yeah. Where can people find you? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for yeah. listening. So you can find me on Instagram. It's just my name, A-L-I-B-O-N-A-R. And then our brand is oat.house. So it's H-A-U-S. And you can find granola butter at Whole Foods on Amazon and on our website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. This was a great conversation. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Free Method Nutrition for more inspiring content on food freedom, intuitive eating, body respect, and many other things. If you're curious how you can support our podcast and help it to reach more people like you, we would love if you would take a minute to rate and review the show. We drop new episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you always catch our latest conversations. See you next episode.